the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, thanks for being with us. We're uh, efforting for our next guest, who's going to join us in a few minutes. Uh, Chris Arnd is with us uh, in a bit, and he's written a, a book called Dignity. That is the single most memorable book I've read this year. I would agree. It's a fabulous book. I mean, it really is. And it's based upon uh, Chris's story uh, as um, he's he's one of these guys who, you know, um, like the movie Wall Street, one of those traitors, you know, um, the wolf of Wall Street, that kind of stuff, where you're surrounded by big screens and there's millions of dollars that are changing hands. You're working for an investment firm or a bank, you know, those guys with the, you know, $2,000 suits and the hair slicked back, the, the Gordon Geckos among us in a way. Well... Chris, you know, living that kind of life and, you know, especially in Manhattan, making that kind of money and surrounded by that sort of lifestyle, thinking that he is, you know, the progressive and doing the right thing and had good social causes, but was in that bubble. Like we all sort of get in our own bubble and it takes something to sort of shake that bubble up and and to find yourself in a different place in a different time. I think it takes a lot of courage to step out and to put yourself in a situation in which you know you will be uncomfortable. Yeah. So few of us ever do that. Well, joining us right now is Chris Arn. Chris is uh, the author of a new work we're talking about called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Chris, uh, we got some time here, so let's, uh, we're going to have you tell your story and uh, without a, a big rush. But, but talk to us about your life in Brooklyn and working for a big bank. I mean, I think a lot of us, you know, uh, we don't know what that lifestyle is like. We look at um, the Wolf of Wall Street or something like that. We see the day traders going on. I mean, that, that's essentially what you were living, right? I mean, a, a, a lot of pressure, a lot of money, but also a lot of reward. Right. I think the the I'm trying to think of the movie. The, there's a recent movie that, about the financial crisis, I think, which captures it a little bit better. Um, that came out um, uh, um, about five years ago. But, um, yeah, I mean, the movies don't capture it somewhat. I mean, it's um, you're sitting in a very, very large room, um, often with 500 other people in a row of computers, um, basically betting on numbers. Um, and uh, you do this from 6.30 in the morning till 6.30 at night. Wow. And uh, and then you go home. <laughs> but your training, and, uh, your training was as a theoretical physicist, right? That's correct. I um, my background is in um, in science, and um, I joined Wall Street in the early nineties, ninety three. Um, Wall Street had starting to become more 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 quantitative. They called them rocket scientists. I was one of the early ones. Um, it's become more common now. It was pretty rare back then for someone with my background to go to Wall Street, but because so much of what you're doing is kind of numbers-based, they kind of made a decision at some point that, you know, a realization that maybe people who are good with numbers might be um, good at these, at these jobs. I see. Um, and it worked and so, well for you, right? It did. I mean, I, I was there for 20 years or 19 years. Um, 
I would say initially I enjoyed it. Um, I had, a, I mean, I'm not going to lie; it was a good life. Um, it pays very well, um, extru- ex- at, at times extraordinarily well, and um, it, it is intellectually interesting. Um, yeah. It can be fulfilling, but uh, after a while, it starts feeling it can start feeling a little bit shallow, and that's how it felt for me. Right. Primarily because um, you know I was at, at the very center of what became the financial crisis um, uh, in 2007, 2008. But you talk in dignity about the financial crisis and, and you know all the pressure and all the trouble it caused for a lot of people. But you and a lot of the uh, traders and all that, even though you took a hit, you, you came through unscathed in a way. Right. The industry did um, didn't suffer the consequences. Um, I certainly think it should have suffered. I think a lot of other people think it should have suffered. Um, you know, um, it was stressful, um, but. In aggregate, we did pretty well, even, and we did pretty well basically because the government bailed us out. And, you know, I, I certainly was in a position where I had to rethink how I, how I saw things and rethink what I was doing for a career. And I, I, I kind of assumed that a lot of people in the industry would come to the same conclusion I did, which was that we had messed up and maybe we should rethink how we, how we do business and rethink how we think about um, business, but uh, that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case to the degree I thought it should have been, and certainly. Um, so I, I stuck it out for another four years, um, but eventually, I, my, I was my mind was drifting to other things. Yeah. Um, so uh, four years. So in dignity, you, you tell the story of to relieve stress and uh, and all the uh, the pressure. You start taking these long walks, and um, uh, just a, a side point: I lived in Manhattan for ten years uh, back in the eighties. And uh, the neighborhood you went into, Hunts Point, uh, of course, uh, it's a subway stop, um, but it's not a place that you know regular Joes want to hang out. D- describe what the, the the Hunts Point neighborhood's like. The South Bronx, in general, is um, generally it's. I, I think uh, the South Bronx is rate of poverty is roughly forty five percent. It's probably parts of the South Bronx like I went to, which is. Um, um, if you readers don't know, the Bronx is kind of north of Manhattan. It's attached to Manhattan by subways and bridges. Um, but um, it's probably 85 and 95 percent Hispanic black. And uh, I'm neither of those things. And so um, I would say I stuck out a little bit initially going into the neighborhood. But that was kind of my thing, which was I kind of dropped all stereotypes and all beliefs, uh, all assumptions, and just kind of just would walk and talk to people. And uh, the South, the neighborhood I went to is um, even even more isolated than the Bronx is isolated. It's kind of removed from the Bronx slightly by an interstate or highway that kind of cuts it off from the rest of the Bronx. Um, So so Chris, the first time that you did this, um, before it evolved into what it actually became, why were you doing it? What was that walk, and what were those people giving you that you didn't have at that time? Um, another perspective. You know, I mean, I think what on, one of the realizations I had sitting there in front of my terminal following the financial crisis was that this was a very shallow way to look at the world. I mean, we were just looking at things through numbers and data and blips on the screens, and we had opinions about things. I certainly had strong opinions about things, but I they all came from looking at these blips on the screen without really thinking about the actual people involved. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it was, it was kind of this process of 
going on these walks was talking to people and just hearing their perspective and listening to their perspective and trying to ignore, um, you know, my, my, my preconceived notions and just listen. And certainly in the Bronx, that was giving me, um, uh, a very different, different perspective on things. I mean, I, I, it wasn't entirely dissimilar to me. I had my background as a child was a little bit less, um, traditional. I mean, we, 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 my father didn't, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in other types of neighborhoods throughout my life. So it was kind of, it was in some ways a, a way I, I was used to as a child of being kind of in places we shouldn't, you know, people would say we shouldn't have been in. Yeah. So you're walking and you're obviously a gregarious guy. You've got a, a camera with you and, and people call out to you. Um, you come across a woman. She's um, Takesha. Uh, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you say, hey, and she says, hey, man, take my picture. And right. And you said why. And her response was what? I, I think the line I, I don't remember exact time is because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a beautiful prostitute, I think is the line. Yeah, um, is exact word. I don't remember exactly the wording, but um, and, um, I, you know, I had seen her. The neighborhood has long been stigmatized as having. Uh, drugs and sex work, even though it's much more than that. It's 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 a it's a it's a thriving community of thirty five thousand people who are suffering from a lot of problems. Right. Um, I mean, you you know, you're right. She says this uh, without a pause. She says, um, uh, "I ask everybody I photographed, how do you want to be described?" And she said, without a pause, as who I am: a prostitute, a mother of six, and a child of God. Right. I mean, there was a. It was a sentence that certainly struck with me, and I think it was even more. It was even more. I don't know if I mentioned in the book. It was even more jarring in some ways because one of the things that is in Hunts Point um, that's been there for over 150 years um, is, is a monastery, um, which has very high walls around it. Um, uh, a Catholic uh, monastery um, that now only houses, I think, six nuns. So I would I would have called it a convent as a child, but yeah. they call them monasteries now. Um, and she wasn't far from that wall of the <laughs> of the convent, so you know it was almost like a cliche. Um, right near the near the convent wall, you meet um, a sex worker outside who was just very 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 blunt about what she did. And so then, for the next three years, you followed Takesha and the street family she was a member of. You said maybe fifty men and women who lived under bridges and abandoned buildings, in sheds, in pits, in broken down trucks, on rooftops. And they were just looking to score something, right? I mean, um, mostly just wanted to get high. Um, yeah, there. You know, I think the, the, this was the the most addicted of the addicted. Um, they've all been, you know, on the streets. They call them just anything. Just give me any drug. And um, you know, one of the things that struck me about spending time with Keisha so was, was was how how bright she was. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. she's off the charts bright, and how. You know that didn't mesh with the supposed image of, you know, a sex worker who's um, has some has some addiction problems and lives on lives often on the street. So, you know, I I enjoyed being around her because she she kept me laughing and she and she was funny and she was and she is she is funny and she's insightful and she's full of life and um, you know and but you see someone like that who is also living the way she lives and it, it just it kind of it kind of messes with your brain a little bit makes you rethink things we're talking to chris arnotti the book is dignity seeking respect in back row america chris talk about your term back row front row 
Right. One one of the things I I saw in the Bronx was um, just kind of how divided we are. And certainly part of the division I saw in the Bronx was a racial division. I was primarily in a neighborhood that was um, Hispanic or um, black. And, um, you know, that certainly was some of the issues of going on. But what I did was I got in my car after spending three years in the Bronx and went to other neighborhoods that have been stigmatized across the United States all over. But 150,000 miles in my car doing that over the course of two years. Um, and one of the things I saw was that I saw many neighborhoods like the South Bronx all across the country, um, all over um, Youngstown, Ohio, and places such as that. And what struck me was that we are divided, but a lot of the division now is educational. And we kind of have these these communities that I call back row communities that are primarily filled with residents who, who, who don't go to college beyond they don't, their education is kind of st- stopped at high school. And, mm-hmm. and if they do go to college, it's usually a community college in the neighborhood or a small trade school or, or a smaller state school. And I started thinking, you know, over these, over the course of these five years, realizing that a lot of the differences that, that, that I saw in how people thought about the world relative to how I did and my friends, the bankers, my old friends, the bankers did was based on the fact that we had very different experiences and a lot of that experience was educational. So the back row I, I liken to basically people, you know, the, the school room analogy, the people who sit in the back of the class and don't necessarily take school that seriously or school doesn't take them that seriously and who just for whatever reason don't really want to want education is just not their thing. Mm-hmm. Chris Arnott is with us. We need to step away for just a few minutes. We're talking about dignity, seeking respect in back row America. What do McDonald's and the church have in common? We'll talk about that next. Stick around. It's the ride home with John and Kathy here on Word FM. Truly one of the most remarkable books that has come across our desks this year. It's called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. The author is Chris Arnotti, and he's with us. Chris, let's talk about your travels, because as you said, you covered 150,000 miles on your car. You spent a lot of time in the Bronx. And when you're seeing people, you know, in the back row, as you called them, you think about a lot of people in the front row of America, uh, a lot of people, even by the massive numbers, way in the back row. But what you discovered was in the back row, people had two places to go to. They spent a lot of time in McDonald's, and those same people, either on a Wednesday night or a Sunday, were welcomed at the church. McDonald's and the church were one and the same. Right. Um, you know, I, I jokingly say I walked into the Bronx, an atheist vegetarian, and I walk, and now I'm the guy who eats meat and, and goes to church. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, it, it changed me in that sense, and um, I still don't consider myself religious by most religious standards, but I certainly rethought the way I saw religion, and um, and I rethought the way I saw McDonald's, and, and in both cases, it was because I, as I as I decided, I was going to learn from people instead of te- instead of lecturing them on what I think they should do. Um, and just listen to them and, and follow them and, and do what they did to some level. Um, I found myself in McDonald's a lot. Um, and the reason was is because in many neighborhoods, in many um, especially rougher neighborhoods, um, poorer neighborhoods, back row communities, it's often the, the one place that kind of functions and is open to the public in many ways. You know, if you're living on the streets and you're going through an addiction or you're going through a bad time or you're living in your car, sleeping in Walmart, um, 
you know, McDonald's is the one place that will welcome you and allow you to kind of just sit there for two hours at the table and recharge your phone, use the Wi-Fi, um, and, you know, just maintain, re- regain a moment of dignity, you know, rejoin society without being stared at. Yeah. You know, if, if, if these same people would go on to state school or, or an elite university, that they would call the police on them and kick them out. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for education. I have a lot of respect for getting the best education. But, you know, these educational institutions don't necessarily treat the poor the way they, they claim they want, them to, want to treat them. Right, right. And, uh, you know... Uh, but the point of the McDonald's was, is like, you know, a lot of elites, a lot of wealthy people like myself make fun of them. But McDonald's are essential to many communities. They're in many ways a community center. It's where people get together to meet and talk. You know, I saw bingo games there. I saw church groups meeting there. I saw people get to get together to play dominoes. People get together to play chess. And at the same time, when you think about the church, of course, you know, the church in the 21st century America, you know, has a bad reputation. It's maligned generally. But the people that show up, whether it's the Keisha or whomever that you met along that journey, all the different church services you went to, they showed up. Um, they weren't, you know, sort of crushed by the pastor's weight of judgment. They were welcome as well, even though they were sex workers and addicts or were struggling in life in some hard way. Yeah, you know, I made a point of going to churches that uh, I made a point of going to church, which was big for me um, as somebody who, would, who hadn't attended church since I was a teen. Um, but I would go to different, whatever whatever small church was in the community, and I would try to focus on smaller churches, ones you know, that had maybe take, I remember one that was in a former Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, you know, one that was in a strip mall um, that had, had been in a furniture store and was now, now, now a church. And what I, what I found in them, you know, was first of all, Often I was the only white person in the, in the service. I was certainly often the outsider for some, you know, in many cases, and I was always welcomed, which was very remarkable. Um, and also, most everybody was welcome. You know, a lot of the people who work, who who have it worse on the streets, the churches offer them kind of a, a place just just to to go and 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 be accepted um, by people who look like them and act like them. People who, you know who certainly, who, who also a lot of people who've been through rough time, who, um, who if they haven't been through a rough time, understand, have a relative who's been in a rough time, and, you know, are willing to give them a chance. And, and, to, and to, you know, as long as, as long as you walk in and try, um, you're willing to give them a chance and, and rethink the way, you know, and that, give them dignity, the dignity of attending a service. And, you know, I started realizing just how valuable the, the churches were in these neighborhoods, and you have to understand that was a very hard thing for me to come to yeah. um, because of my previous position. But, you know, I was, again, if I was going to be have a truly open mind and if I was going to even use my scientific background, I, I couldn't deny what I saw. Chris, so where you started, and I want to make sure that we kind of go back just a little bit in case we have listeners that are just joining us, but you were a successful trader on Wall Street. You um, had a theoretical science, theoretical physics degree. Um, you were you had made your way through the financial crisis. You'd come out kind of smelling like a rose. Um, so finances weren't a concern. Your apartment wasn't a concern. Um, and your perspective on the world at that point, before you took your first walk, how did you think about marginalized people in America? I, I, I'm, I'm on the left. I'm progressive. And so I, you know, I, I thought I thought of them as um, in, in, in a um, in a non-demeaning way. I thought I thought of them as, um, uh, you know, I, I thought I was sympathetic. 
Um, and I was, I think, but I don't think I fully understood um, just how removed I was from, from them. You know, I thought because of my background, I came from a very small town in the South. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up rich. Um, that I understood at least um, better than most wealthy people, um, the, you know, the working class. But I realized during this process just how removed I had become mm-hmm. during, my, during the 30 years of uh, you know, going to get a, college, get a PhD and then going to Wall Street. Um, and I realized that a lot of the way we well-intentioned wealthy people think about the working class is often very condescending. We just kind of say, well, that's all very well and good. I feel sorry for you. Here, here's our solutions to your problems instead of saying, oh, let me just listen to what you think is your solution to your problem. You know, it's kind of a classic example I always use is um, when, you know, I, just, I call it the well-actually syndrome. When you go into an, when a wealthy person or a well-educated person who's well-intentioned goes into a town that's not, they're not that familiar with, they'll, you know, the person, will, the people in the town will complain about something and then that, that person will say, well, well actually, <laughs> you know, like, well, actually, you should move. You know, I'm sorry your job, I'm sorry your factory left, but that's actually good for the country and you should move. Right. I think those are very, 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 very condescending ways to think. But Chris, that's what makes your book so challenging because we're like you. You know, as I, I would turn each page and I'd look at each photograph and I'd think, you know, I feel like I want to think that I'm a compassionate person and I want to think that I'm open-minded and I recognize that not everyone's experience is like mine and not everyone's education levels like mine and not everyone's sense of opportunity or experience of opportunity is the same. I, I want to think that I believe that and I know that, but there's something way different in my understanding and yours after years of actually walking and being there with people. Well, I think the rule of thumb I now use is, uh, the best I can say to people is, um, it's, it's the old adage, um, before before you judge somebody, um, walk a mile in their shoes. You know, um, I, it's made me rethink in terms of like, you know, that knee-jerk reaction you have when you, when you see something, you're just about to yell, well, you know, to them, you know, maybe pause for five or 10 minutes and think, hmm, <laughs> you know, maybe there's a lot going on in their life I don't know about. Um, Maybe there's um, you know situations they're involved in or or trauma they've been through that they're not able to reveal to me, and so just withhold judgment for a bit um, mm-hmm. until I get to know them better. I'm not saying everybody is wonderful. You know, there are people, there are bad people in every group of you know in the world. There are people who, um, but in aggregate, you know, if you, especially if you see a group of people that you don't feel comfortable around, and you're kind of like you don't understand why they're doing something something the way they're doing. Is you know, I think the way to way to do is hold withhold judgment for a while. And then try to understand, try to try to like, you know, see how they live for a day or even two days and just, um, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. Yeah. We're talking about God, McDonald's and dignity. Chris Arnotti, his brand new book is called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. We need to take a, a quick break, but Chris is going to stay with us. We hope that you do as well. It's a beautiful, heartbreaking story, uh, the narrative and the photographs as well in dignity. So stay with us. Chris Arnott is with us. His brand new work is called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Listen, you have to check out this book. Before we finish our segment with Chris, we're going to talk about the absolutely unbelievable photographs that are included in it. I mean, it's just it's it's a book you absolutely cannot miss. Um, Chris, I, I, I guess I want to talk about 
the evolution in your thought um, between being trained as a scientist and then ending up in these little tiny churches that would spring up in storefronts. I mean, you know, we talk a lot on our show about the collision and the tension between science and faith, especially in America today. And, you know, John and I are educated people. And so we, you know, bought into the whole, you know, science is the way that you figure things out, and the way you understand the world. And you say that you felt the same way in your book. Um, talk about where you started and then what it was like to end up in these little churches where all this crazy stuff was happening. Right. I mean, I would never make fun of religion. I wasn't one of those atheists. <laughs> I mean, that just wasn't in my DNA. Um, you know, I would get frustrated. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a town that was very religious um, and... I was kind of in many ways felt like because of that, I didn't really fit in. It wasn't kind of who I was. Um, but I never I never felt I was one of those people who, who, who would make fun of the religious. I think it, I was surrounded by those people, and it would always made me feel uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, having once I started walking into churches and, and going, I mean, it was, again, as a scientist, uh, forget the emotion, but as a scientist, I couldn't deny the the power of what was going on there and, and, and how important it was to people. And, you know, the way I, the way I look at it now is I, I always say to my friends who are, you know, my scientific friends, I say, look, you know, science is good at building bridges. I'm not so sure it's good at building meaningful lives. And I think we, we tend to think it, it, we scientists, you know, tend to think it can do both. And I think we should Except it's like I said, it's really good at building bridges. It's good at getting us to the moon, and and those are important things. Um, but I don't think it's really that great at building a community. Um, and I think a lot of what faith does, you know, what, what I what I see in these neighborhoods and these churches is just how 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 strong the community is and how how important it is to people. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I um you know. Uh, there's just uh, there's so many times like I just you know think of place, places where you know I was overwhelmed by the by the by the emotion of what was going on and you know just really made me rethink how I think about religion and what I come you know the way I, I say it to other people now is um, you know I, I think I look back at kind of the my old self my old self who was um, Kind of more, far more close-minded about that, and I used to, used to say that you know it was, it was there was a real hubris there, this real sense that you know we in science can control can, can solve everything. And one of the things that spending six years dealing with people who live under bridges is you realize it's not so clear we can solve everything. There's some some problems are just too big and unknowable, and you know I think faith understands that, understands the humility that it takes to to, to walk into that church and. And, and and put your put your faith in in, in the Bible, yeah, or or, or the Quran or <laughs> or the Torah, what have you. And so, Chris, after those six years and all these people, I mean, I I really ad- admire your willingness to to go out there and be so transparent with people. And you know, you talk about it in, in dignity. It wasn't as though you know you were sort of the sugar daddy for the crowd, but of course, as you built these relationships that were longstanding, you know, they knew that you were the outsider, and they knew that you know when times were rough, they could you know look to you, and you know, you give them ten or twenty dollars and could help them along the way. I mean, all, all that. But I, you know, you look at America today, and you. You know what it is to be on the highways and to pull off and to, you know, go into Kentucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's or whatnot. And 
the, those people, it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, boom times of record unemployment or not, that the poor will always be with us and the addict will be with us, the alcoholic, the sex worker. It, it, you know, good times or not, there's always going to be this dark underbelly of, of despair in, in a certain percentage of people's lives. So with all that, you know, whenever you're at home now and, you know, you're lying in bed and you got clean sheets and, you know, that, you know, everything's going to be okay. What do you take away from that? That No matter what, no matter the excellence of a government program or a handout or some equal opportunity access that people can buy into, there's no perfect solution to this, is there? That, you know, that people are always going to be broken and always looking for some help. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. Is one of the things I've I've learned is, is, I mean, or how I've changed is I, I always hand people money now. If if, if someone comes up to me at McDonald's and asks me for five dollars, I'll give it to them. I don't care how clearly wrong the story is, and you know, me, they're yeah, quite, you yeah. know, it's just you know what, uh, fine. <laughs> it's complicated. I'll, I'll you know, you know, I, old me used to say, well, you know, it doesn't, it, it's harmful. Uh, you give it to charities, like you know, do both. I just, I just, and, mm. and buy people a meal, and you know, and and what what have you. Um, you know, I think the way I think about our society is, you know, it's kind of like we built a society that works really well for, let's say, 70% of the people. And for 20% of the people, it doesn't work very well. And for 10% of the people, it just doesn't work at all. Um, for some reason, it just it just chews them out, chews them up and spits them out. And a lot of them have gone through things that, you know, I, I, can, I just can't imagine anybody going through. And so, you know, I feel like in some senses we have an obligation, <laughs> yeah, as, yeah. As, as a moral obligation, forget a political obligation, it's a moral obligation to kind of realize that, you know, you know if, if things had been different, that could have been me or it could have been my daughter or it could have been my, my, my brother. And so I, I just i am a firm believer in that uh, just helping to the extent you can and, and not being cynical about it. You know, I mean, right. I, there, are, there are people I'm sure who played me and you know what, okay. You know, I'm sure if you got to the case where you need to play me for ten dollars, I'm sure things aren't going well, anyways. You know, right. so what's it matter? You know? Yeah, yeah. So what's it matter? Right. Hey, so um, take take a moment in, in our times that we're up against the clock here. But you know, along with your storytelling, which you're a terrific storyteller, your photographs are just. I mean, they expose the soul of people. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously, there were times when I saw the photographs that made yeah. me cry. Yeah. What was that like? I mean. Uh, Talk to us about that experience of allowing people to let their guard down. People did let their guard down or amongst you that they show their true selves. Right. One of the things I always, you know, I always carry a camera with me. I, I guess I call myself a photographer. Um, but one of the things I found is when I had a camera, it was always people open up, um, you know. And what I wanted to do for so many people was to provide them a photograph. You know, if, if, if you're doing well, you kind of allow, you control your image. You, 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 you take a picture that works for you. So many people don't have that opportunity because, you know, the, the pictures are usually taken um, in not very flattering circumstances. So I always allowed somebody to control how the picture happened. Um, you know, after after we talk for an hour or two hours or half an hour, what have you, I would I would ask if I could take their picture, and, and almost 95% of people, 98% of people said sure. And then I would allow them a minute or two to go in the bathroom to clean up, you know, fix their makeup, um, um, do their hair, um, or, or 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 even change a shirt, you know, to to be in, to, to to look in a way that that I thought gave them what I was trying to give them, which is dignity. Yeah. Um, to, to to allow them to have a, a picture that they're proud of, not a, not a I got gotcha you picture, you know. So many right. people 
take a picture of these people like, hey, I just they're like they're collecting Pokemon or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, but no, to really to make sure that person valued that picture. And, you know, so the, the reason being is so, again, you know, I think one of the things that's great about photography, it allows it forces the viewer to come and look at that person and before judging them, just look into their eyes for a moment and, and think about them um, and, you know, and, 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 and hopefully come to the realization that, you know, everybody, <laughs> everybody goes through a lot in life, you yeah, know. There's just a shared humanity. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, you've shown great kindness in your work, and you've changed my perspective. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. The author, Chris Arnotti. Thanks, Chris. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.